This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 14. Episode 26. This is Writing Excuses, lessons from Aristotle with Rob Kimbrough. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Dan. And I'm Rob. And Rob, introduce yourself to our audience. Sure. My name is Rob Kimbrough, and I'm a uh, theater director and teacher, uh, and also sometime adapter, and a sometime colleague and collaborator of Mary Robinette's. And that is actually why he is here, because over the years, I've known Rob Kimbrough for uh, well over a decade at this point, and he's one of my favorite people to talk structural theory with, because he comes at it, he's a dramaturg, among other things, and every time I talk to him, I'm like, that's a really good thing, and then we'll come back and incorporate it into the writing. He's also one of us, because he's a science fiction (laughs) fan, he listens to the podcast, Uh, but we were talking about um, various things from Aristotle, and you brought up the six elements of Aristotle, and please tell us. And I should say at the beginning that one of the things I am not is an Aristotle scholar, but I am somebody who's, uh, who's done a lot of theatrical adaptation, so taking stories from the page and putting them on, on stage. And uh, at one point, I did a graduate program in that, and Aristotle's poetics was something I found really useful. Uh, and there are a few different tools you can pull out of that book, but one of them is his idea that story, he says tragedy, but, but really it's generalizable to story, is made of six things. And he puts them in an order. And those six things are, from the most important to the least, plot, character, idea, dialogue, music, spectacle. And what I find is that that's a, it's a taxonomy, it's a paradigm that you can apply to stories and think about how is this working and how can it work better. Um, and the place that I think it's useful to depart from Aristotle is that he says, and he's, he's fairly descriptive, he says the best stories he sees, they go in this order. But I, what I find is that every story has its own order. When he says order, order of importance order or of orders importance. of, okay. Order of importance. Order of importance. I, I really, this is my first time encountering this idea, mm-hmm. but it is explaining a lot of the things that I think rub people the wrong way about mm-hmm. bad stories. Mm-hmm. Um, in a, f- a few episodes ago, I complained about how fight scenes are so boring. And it's because it's spectacle. And if you don't have good plot or good character embedded in that mm-hmm. spectacle, then the spectacle itself, that's the least important one. That's not enough to keep you going. Right. Although a fight scene doesn't have to be spectacle, but it often is. Mm-hmm. And, and if the fight scene is character, if that's what it's doing, yeah. then and- you need to know that when you write it. Right. Or if the fight scene is plot. Yeah. But I think yeah. those are the three things it could be. And if spectacle is what you need from your fight yeah, scene. It, exactly. It's, it's, it's worth mentioning that sometimes you just want to watch Jackie Chan do something amazing with a ladder. Mm-hmm. That is spectacle that is worth your time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Jackie Chan is never just doing something with a ladder. That's True. the thing. He's also he's also laying groundwork for for plot and character at the same time. He's giving you geography. He's all, all doing, a, mm-hmm. I mean, geography was not one of the elements. Sure. But, but, <laughs> yes. But, but it, it is, it's one of the reasons that you are willing to give him that in addition to, to okay, no, actually, you're right. It's all about the spectacle. <laughs> but, and the thing is, it can be, because yeah. Aristotle puts it sixth, but it's not always sixth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I think, um, and, 
and they're going to be different for any medium. You know, right. so like in a written medium, music is often likely going to be down there at the bottom unless you're doing something fairly unusual. Spectacle, you might think, is also near the bottom in a novel. Yeah. But I think of things like um, like George R. R. Martin's Castles, you know, the way that every stronghold he does in those books, like that's that's written word spectacle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When he talks about the size of Winterfell or the, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's worth considering audience as well. Mm-hmm. Um, in one of the theater classes that I had in college, my professor would refer to things like uh, Phantom of the Opera as tired businessman shows. And they're all spectacle and music, but sometimes that's all your audience wants. Sure, sure. Yeah. And there was a, an adaptation I worked on at uh, McCarter Theater of, of a book called Crowns, um, which is the source material is this coffee table book. And it's photos of uh, black women, Southern African-American women in their church hats. And each one gets a little like paragraph of that woman telling something. Um, that book is, is spectacle in character. It's right. pictures of hats and it's these, these snapshots of, of character. And then, um, and the books by um, uh, Mayberry and um, um, I, would, I can look it up if we want to do it in the liner notes. But um, Regina Taylor uh, took it and made it into a play. And one of the things about that process is at that point, you have to have some plot. Like, you don't have to have a plot in the coffee table book, but right. you have to have plot. And the thing she did that was brilliant is the show is laced with music, incredible, often gospel music throughout. And so in that adaptation, the order of those six elements change. Um, and that's part of the success of the, of the adaptation. So how about the two in the middle? Because we, we were talking mm-hmm. about plot and character and then music and spectacle. <laughs> Where do the two in the middle, like, how do those map to literature sure, in our... Sure. Well, I think, I mean, dialogue, like, I think about Aaron Sorkin. Right. You know, if, like, I, I, you know, I believe television is primarily, I would argue, primarily a character medium. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think books tend to do plot and ideas really well, although you can shuffle. I think movies are big on spectacle, you know, relatively right. speaking. TV, I think, tends to do character and, and plot. But when you watch an Aaron Sorkin TV show, sometimes what you're there for is, is the, the dialogue. dialogue. Is just the words. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and David Mamet. And he was sure. the one I was going to mention as yeah. well. Uh, he, Tom Stoppard sometimes yeah. is that kind of, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and off the top of my head, um, that's why I like Catcher in the Rise. Not so much the characters or anything that happens to them, but the way that it is written. Uh, that's also what I love about uh, the Kingkiller Chronicles is yeah. the, yes. the language and the dialogue. You know, so, you can almost argue that that's music also. No. I was having the same thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was like, where, because I feel like the, the lyrical language falls into a different category than, than spoken language, the, the dialogue language. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's a really interesting thing because I feel like with with my own writing, the, the music of the language is not as important to me as the uh, as the the dialogue mm-hmm. like the the way the characters interact and the way that's communicating to each other I am less interested in writing a sentence that is a beautiful sentence for the sake of being a beautiful sentence mm-hmm. um, which some of my some of my uh, Goodreads reviews talk about <laughs> <laughs> but then I think part of the the usefulness of this is the what are we here for? You yeah. know, what, are, what, am I, what am I expecting my audience to be enjoying in this work? And it's generally not all six at the same time uh, or not all six at the same time. And I yeah. think it's useful 
I think it can be useful in the way that all of these writing tools are just to help you think about what am I trying to do right now as I write yeah. this fight scene. Yeah. So another thing that I see a lot, especially as I am reading, um, you know, short story submissions um, from brand new writers is that they are trying to really knock our socks off on the first page or the first chapter. And what they're actually doing under the hood, now that I know this system, is that they've picked a different element to promote. They're going to mm-hmm. give us gorgeous language in the first chapter without realizing that they're making a promise and then mm-hmm. not fulfilling it because the rest of the book is not about language. They were just trying to impress us. You know, I, I took a class uh, from Donald Moss um, where he talked about openings. It was just a class on openings. And and he broke it down into there being basically two major types of opening, character-driven openings uh, and uh, and voice-driven openings. Mm. Um, and that they are not that you can have a voice-driven opening that is also a character opening, but that in a character opening, what you're trying to do is ground the reader in who we, who the character is and where we are. So you try to hit them with, with basically plot and character. And that a voice-driven opening is all about the language and the ideas that you're evoking in the reader. And I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, right. it's all about the bottom three, ideas, music, and, and spectacle, right. which is probably why I tend to not, I mean, I personally tend to gravitate towards things as a reader that are driven by plot, character, and dialogue mm-hmm. more so than, than I do with things that are just, that are voicey. Mm-hmm. Let's stop for our book of the week, which is very surprisingly Aristotle's Poetics. Right. <laughs> which is the, the book where he lays all this out. Um, and, and you'll find when you go to that, that the ideas I'm talking about today are modified by my experience in teaching and the people who taught me. But uh, it's not that long. It's public domain, of course. Uh, you can find it on Project Gutenberg or, or any number of places like that. Cool. Cool. Um, so you, I, I feel like I keep, wanting, I keep wanting to talk about this, but I also mm-hmm. know that we have modes that we could talk right. about as well, which is, a, that was one of the other things when you uh, mentioned I got really excited yeah. about. That's where we started this conversation, yeah. right? So that's, um, so that's a thing, a classification of story thing. So we talk about, or at least when I teach and I, I hear you guys talk about uh, medium, you know, what's your interface between the author brain and the, and the audience brain? Uh, genre, uh, which I think are about audience expectations to some extent. Modes is a classification system that's about the relationship of the author to the story and to the audience. So Aristotle says there are three modes, lyric, epic, and dramatic. In lyric, an author is telling of their own experience. In epic, an author is telling a story that happens to someone else. In dramatic, you are shown a story without an author presence. Hmm. Okay. The, so some other people picked that up, um, and you'll hear it described sometimes as narrator talks, only narrator talks, characters talk, narrators talk, and characters talk. And what gets tricky is that there's a lot of writing about it that assumes that plays are dramatic mode, that that's what you're doing. You're showing a thing that... that written that epic, like Homer is epic mode. He is telling a story that is happening. But but that's kind of a trap because to write effectively in any of those modes 
it's useful to realize that your me all mediums can be mixed modes. You can activate dramatic mode in written prose. For example, it's the 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 phrase about Jane Austen's writing, the clear and clear and direct. Yes. Am I getting that right? Mm -hmm. Is I think an attempt to do dramatic mode or a method for doing dramatic mode in writing. The author is disappearing and you're just seeing a scene. You're being shown a scene. Whereas in other places you get narrative mode where the author comes in and becomes more present. And, and yeah. Jane Austen goes back and forth in that right. as well. And that was one of the things that, um, for me, when I, I heard Rob do this talk at the Nebula conference, um, and one of the things for me that got exciting was realizing that it was it was talking about the way I, as the writer, am relating to the audience, mm -hmm. and that I am relating to them through this this medium of of fiction but that there were things that uh, that worked very well in fiction um, that didn't necessarily work as well on stage or that worked well on stage that I would try to do in fiction that, that wouldn't work. But a lot of it had to do with, with shifting my thinking about what mode I was in, like mm -hmm. where, where I was and, and how that relationship was, was shifting. And figuring out how to activate the mode you want. So what, what kicked off that talk that I did at the Nebbies is there's a, there's a passage from Tolkien where he says that fantasy can't work on the stage. It's in an essay in Leaf, Tree and Leaf, whatever that uh, collection of essays is. And he says fantasy doesn't work on stage. He goes so far as to say that the witches in McBee don't work. And when you read what he's saying, he's saying essentially that it's because the stage is dramatic form. You have to show it, and we're not going to believe it, and suspension of disbelief is shattered. Um, Horace says something similar in his Ars Poetica, that basically, you show me something I can't believe, and I'm not going to go there. But what I find in practice, and what I think people who, you know, like those plays, like Midsummer Night's Dream, find in practice, is that if you can find ways to activate a narrative mode in the audience, which is sort of a collective creation mode. Like, mm -hmm. I need you to imagine this with me. Yeah. Then it can work. And you can do that with a narrator device. You can do that with puppetry, which yeah. is something Mary Robinette and I have done together. Yeah. We did. We worked together on an adaptation of Neil Gaiman's Odd and the Frost Giants a few years ago. And there's a lot of fantastic in that. And part of the way you do that is if you do it with a puppet, the audience knows that's not a frost giant, you know, or that's not a bear. It is us imagining a bear. Yeah, um, this concept of kind of collaborative fiction with the audience is something that Penn and Teller do, and they do it overtly. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that uh, that fascinates them, and when they said it in an interview, it fascinated me, is that once they have spent all the time laying out what this narrative is going to be, the audience will keep believing it even when they know it's false. And the example they gave was someone can, after the show go up and have an entire conversation with Teller and then talk to Penn and say, it's so cool that Teller never talks. <laughs> They're like, you just talked to him. You just had dinner with him. But no, in their head, Teller never talks right. because that's part of what they've bought into in order to enjoy mm -hmm. the story. And there's something you have to be careful with on stage in this is if you get too dramatic mode, if you get too full in, we're showing you the thing, then you let the audience off the hook. The audience doesn't do the work. And I think television and film can be this even more so because we're not used to doing creative work 
when we're watching those. And then the fantastic becomes harder mm. um, if we're not primed to imagine with. This has been fascinating. I really like when we have a chance to sit down and do episodes like this that, that are topics we would never have pro- approached on our own. Thank you so much for being on. Thanks for having me. You have an exercise. I do. I do. So let's go back to the elements. Um, and so what I'm going to suggest as the exercise is take something you've written and then rank what those six elements are for that. What's the most important? What's the least important? Again, those are plot, character, idea, dialogue, music, spectacle. Then go back, rearrange the order, and rewrite it to do that. Fun. Awesome. This has been Writing Excuses. Thank you so much, Rob, for being on. You guys are out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.